Hi, I'm Cameron. And I'm Katie. And this is the Nerdbook Review. Today we will be, well, today Cameron will be interviewing M.D. Presley and then reviewing his book, The Woven Ring. Yes, I'm very excited. It is going to be my very first interview with an author. His book is in the Spiffbo 2017 competition, which is self-published fantasy book off run by Mark Lawrence. He will find out in uh, just a day or two after this is uh, this one goes out th- whether he makes it to the semifinals. He made it through the first round. Uh, we're getting cut back down to, I think, like the final 10 or somewhere around there. And as this is the first interview, we're still working on the format. And the next one, it might change. It might be in a separate episode than the review. So we'll see how this one goes. Yeah. We would love it if we could get some good feedback from uh, you guys out there. If you happen to listen to this, let me know if you enjoy having a review afterwards or if it would be best just to stick to our, just the interview. Yep. Yep. Thank you. So uh, real quick though, uh, I would love it if you would contact us on Twitter at Nerdbook Review, Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Nerdbook Review. Probably. (laughs) All right. And then um, you can email us at nerdbookreview at gmail.com. I think that's all the places. Awesome. Oh, also, uh, we do a little bit of reviewing books that we don't review on here on Goodreads. Nerdbook Review is my name on Goodreads. Go ahead and friend me there or look at our reviews. Thanks. All right. Let's go ahead and get right to that interview. All right. Hi, this is Cam with Nerdbook Review. So I have with us author Matt Presley, writing under the name M.D. Presley. Uh, I read his book, The Woven Ring, the first book in the uh, Soul... Soul's Harvest. Yeah. <laughs> and Soul's Harvest. Thank you there. Matt, I'm going to ask you a quick question for an icebreaker. Then mm-hmm. we will get into uh, telling us about yourself and things. If civilization had a catastrophic collapse, what would you do to survive or would you be among the many to die quickly? (laughs) Well, everyone thinks they're going to be the one to survive. And uh, I would like to say that I have no illusions. Uh, My wife, for instance, you know, we love Walking Dead and that type of thing. But I've told her if the zombie invasion happens, I'm just going to kill her while she's still a human. Because it's just going to, I mean, she's just going to not just slow me down, but she's going to eventually kill me when she becomes a zombie. So it's just easier right off the bat. But that said, um, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to live. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I you know, I, I think if I can make it past that initial thing, um, I'll be OK. I have a lot of weird, quirky things. I actually own dump trucks and I'm a great mechanic. <laughs> so, OK, yeah, it's kind of a random thing. Like I went to college, graduated right into the recession and. <laughs> Went to college to get away from the family business, but because of the recession, I got into the family business and ended up <laughs> buying out my grandpa. And now, now it's just my dad and I. So, anyways, I'm probably the only uh, uh, dump truck owning uh, pod nerdbook podcaster. You are. It would be in high demand. <laughs> I mean, when the zombie killing vehicle is needed to plow through the streets, you, sir, that's where we're going. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, all right, uh, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, like your, where did you grow up um, and all that kind of good stuff? Um, let me, th- oh, this is like the, not the worst question in the world. It's just, oh, talk about yourself. That's terrifying. <laughs> um, I am a uh, Texan, born and, born and raised, uh, grew up, you know, the important years in Dallas, uh, went to school an hour outside of Dallas and lived in New York and Boston and now in Long Beach, um, I do screenwriting uh, for my day job and day job ad- adjacent. I guess screenwriting adjacent for day job, as in I look at coverages all day. And um, been doing that for far too many years, and finally decided to step on into that whole self-publishing thing just to get away from directors and producers and the like. And found out it was not any easier. Yeah, that was uh, definitely something that I wanted to to know more about. I think that the self-publishing is something that that people just don't know as much about. It's definitely more mainstream now than it was even just five years ago. But what's your experience been with self-publishing? Well, I came in as an absolute novice. I mean, I dipped 
tiny toe in of what my knowledge level is now, <laughs> a year later. But um, it, man, um, it's great if you've got the uh, do-it-yourself kind of mentality. I mean, if you if you can hustle, then you know more power to you. If you're socially adept, that's great. I am not many of those things, but you know it's very equalizing to you know have Amazon there and then in 15 minutes be able to upload everything and be done, which is means you don't need the publisher, you don't need the agent. But at the same time, because of none of those things, we still suffer from the stigma of, of you know, being crap. And, you know, and as it becomes more of a viable option, then we need a sort of kind of regulation, a self-regulation to, you know, show the, the, the good, the wheat from the chaff kind of thing. And I feel like I'm rambling. So was that anywhere close to uh, your question? Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, mm-hmm. so talking about the... Um, like this, the opinion of the self-published author, and that in the past it was always like you said that they were just thought of as as not as as good or as uh, mm-hmm. uh, important as the ones with the big five. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that is is slowly changing. And I think that that now that we have uh, you know more of the social media stuff, the the editing and things like that. You're not seeing so many books that that come out just looking like someone re- wrote them and never even had anyone edit them. So, I, do you think that have you felt like the perceptions changed at all, like in the last year or two? Oh, I've only been in it in the last year or two, so um, no. <laughs> but I think that it has not for me personally, but I I know it has. I mean, just listening to the marketing podcasts and and that kind of thing, you realize that you know the self publishing changes almost hourly. And so whatever the new thing is, you know, they, they talk about, well, are you writing in the, are you writing to market, you know, uh, like, cause whatever it is this week may not be the popular thing that week. So there, there is less, I don't want to say regulation cause it sounds like the government should be doing it, but <laughs> there, there is because of the quick turnaround and the speed and you don't spend three years getting your book out. If you don't want to, you can write it up, no time, put it out. Um, because of the glut of all of the amateurism, then if you can look professional, it doesn't matter if you are professional or of quality, as long as you look it, then you can still get a chance. And, you know, then, then it's up to the writing itself. But, you know, yeah. Yeah. Have you uh, attempted to, to do the query and uh, get your book uh, through a publisher or did you just go straight to the self-publishing? Straight to the self-publishing. I, I've sent out... I think 20 query letters, but you know, that's everything I do for screenwriting, you know, go meet so-and-so go send out such and such, get an agent, you know, and it's just, I couldn't do it anymore. So this was direct contact with an audience. Like I didn't have to filter it. I didn't have to spend two years getting a movie made or whatever, just put it out there and then let audiences decide instead of waiting for a director or producer to go, no, change this. People won't like that, you know, to like, well, if they don't like it, I'm failing because of me. So that was, yeah, <laughs> I just couldn't go through any more rejections. Yeah. That, and do you think that being a screenwriter helped you uh, being a novelist? Was it a little bit of a hindrance? I mean, other than the, the being able to write aspect? Well, I mean, they're, they're diff- entirely different mediums, which is why I think that every time they try to adapt a, a book to a movie, like, that's... Yeah, you know, trying to turn apples into oranges, and if it tastes funny, that's why. But, you know, there are still carryovers. Like, it's mechanics. You know, just because you're a, uh, well, I guess you would understand. Like, you know, because you're a good car mechanic doesn't mean you're going to be a great airplane mechanics. Oh, yeah. You know, there are some carryovers, and perhaps you can be both. But, you know, they are not the opposite of mutually exclusive. You know, they, they don't, one does not necessitate the other. So we are a generation that is raised on television and movies. And as such, I think that, you know, the hero's journey and all these things have been adapted into screenwriting, which is in turn helpful for novel writing, like get to the point, you know, this is the act structure. Um, I I didn't want to promote my own website, but I, I, 
spend, I have a whole series of blog posts of adapting screenplay techniques specifically for novel writing that I've trial and errored my way through. So yeah, I think, and I think it works because we've been so inundated with media that it's, you know, leaking into books. And so I'm trying to ri- ride that cresting wave. <laughs> yeah. And I think that the, the way I can tell, uh, or the, with your first book with the, the screenwriting was in your like incredibly crisp dialogue. I, I felt like the uh, characters, the way they talked was natural. There wasn't any, you know, flowery language that there was a way someone wouldn't talk. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's probably, is, is that where you think like screenwriting helps a lot? Well, I think so, because you have to say it. In screenwriting, it's an invisible medium. It's like writing sheet music. You know, no one but the person performing it is going to actually see it. Um, so, you know, you can write badly, even though you shouldn't, or write bad, write badly. But the dialogue is the one thing that will make it to the screen. Those are the few, you know, notes that they're going to be played for sure. So, you know, you you better better work at it. <laughs> so, you read it out loud, and and that's what I said. You know, good dialogue is not grammatically correct. Mm-hmm. We drop words. We, you know, that's what I tell my copy editor. It's like, you know, don't worry about you know, I mean, look at it. If it's the wrong word and you can tell it's the wrong word, great. But, you know, grammatically incorrect, leave it alone if it's dialogue. I, I understand there. Um, yes, and hey, working uh, in a rural area, I can tell you that, uh, you know, <laughs> that's how people talk. So the uh, the self-publishing fantasy book, is it book off? Is that what that mm-hmm. is? That was? How has uh, your experience been with that, and has it helped with sales at all? It has not helped with sales. I'm still in the waiting period uh, to find out if I've made it to the next phase. So, <laughs> no. It does help a little bit because I tried to put together a, a giveaway for um, for a lot of us Spiffo artists, artists, Spiffo authors. And so I got a lot of sales by giving away my own book, which was kind of nice. But, you know, um, but no, it hasn't hasn't translated into anything yet mind you you know the payoff you know the people who have made it from last year or the year before you know they've definitely you know this has put them on the map so you know the the gamble is there's a big pot of money not money but there's a big pot of attention at the end uh, have not gotten anything out of it yet yeah yeah i know i i've uh I talk quite a bit just on social media with Dirk, and he, you know, he's uh, he has really enjoyed the process. Uh, Phil Tucker, I think he actually he loves the self-publishing thing, and he's really good, you know, with the. And then I can't remember who won it, but I think he did take a Jonathan a, French. Yeah, yeah. He, and, but I mean, yeah, Phil Tucker, I think puts something out every three, four months. So <laughs> there is no way he could uh, maintain that in a traditional. And if I remember correctly, he kind of came up in the traditional like he had interned and so learned their learned the process from the inside so i think he's got the best of both worlds going right now yeah i think he actually said that he he felt like he would have if he had gotten the contract would have been just too small and and just been basically uh indentured servant almost i think is what he said so let's go ahead and actually talk about your book itself uh i have to just say i is probably right behind red sister as uh, one of my favorite books of the year. It's <laughs> yeah, I, not to not to throw pressure on you as you're talking about it here, but I just found that you took. I, I felt like you took a real big risk with the way you went about things, and it paid off. Let's. I guess let's first talk about the book, and then we can talk about some of the details of it. So uh, I guess what was your? Uh, um, I mean, the inspiration behind it was obviously the Civil War, but where did you uh, come up with your idea and? Uh, and how'd you go about executing it? Um, so the idea was kind of a thought experiment, actually. I just decided to make a world. I had been watching uh, The Last Airbender, and it was like, this is such an amazing, vibrant, consistent, just you know, inviting world. I want to go to there. And so I was like, can I make a world that is equally cool? And I mean, I don't think I got anywhere close, but you know, I had this world sitting around. And then... Then I was, you know, like, hey, I think steampunk's going to be 
something soon and ah, it just didn't really work for me. And I watched Ken Burns uh, documentary on the civil war and it was like, that's it. And I picked Marta out of one of my many characters that's never quite made it. And she just plugged in really quickly. And yeah, it's, I had all this idea, never worked on it. I had a manager in screenwriting for a while and he was like, yeah, that's what are you going to do with this? So I had was, was working with a British company and writing one of their scripts, and we had just come back from a wonderful trip to London, and you know, and our director left, and so we were kind of stuck, and so we were doing some rewrites, and then they said, "All right, great," and I didn't hear from them for a while, and I think writing is not like bicycling, like once you're you're up to speed, you gotta keep going to maintain that speed. So I was like, well, I'll just keep writing. I'll start working on this world. And so I started working on the Souls Harvest like this, as the whole idea. Like I blocked it out into a 85-page document of this is what each book's going to happen. These are the characters. These are the backstories, the world. And still I heard nothing from the producers, so I figured they had dropped the project. So I kept working on it. And three months later, I had a book. And... Then the uh, producers got in touch and they said, well, how was your summer? They had apparently all just gone on vacation for three months. So, <laughs> Is that some European thing? or uh... It's <laughs> European and Australian, yep. <laughs> oh, like, man. oh, did you go anywhere? Like, yeah, I went to Vegas for three days. What about you? Like, well, I was in Brazil for a few weeks and then we went. Like, oh, yeah, that's, that's a different world. I guess so. So so you actually had the world created then uh, before. And just for anyone who's going to be listening to this, uh, I recommend going to it's mdpresley.com mm -hmm. and there if you love maps and you love world building then uh, he has created quite the uh, online inter, um, interactive experience with the world oh, thank you uh, and the, the fun thing is is in screenwriting it's a bible like you make a show bible and that's like you know your rules to the world so other people can write in it and I mean, if you look it up, you can find um, the Star Trek, like uh, Gene Roddenberry's original Star Trek Bible of like, this is what happens. So everything that's on the website, 95% of it just was cut and paste from my, my Bible. So it was just, so I, I, everything was fleshed out so easily that I could just cut and paste it when it was, came time to writing it. Oh, cool. You, know, you mentioned Marta as your, uh, your main character. How'd you decide on a female main character? I, when I originally con conceived of the character, uh, she was, she was a male at the time, but that was 15 years prior probably. And it was just like, Hey, I, someone in an exoskeleton trying to transport a kid, that would be cool. And never found a place to plug that character. And when I started looking at it, I have an archetype for a female that I've written several times before. And she... It's definitely that. I mean, she's her own character, but she's definitely that archetype. So, I that sounds like I'm just stealing for myself there, but cannibalizing my own idea. It makes a lot of sense, especially uh, since you have. Uh, I mean, the, basically, the the plot is is that they're trying to transport a child um, across the uh, this just just post Civil War uh, nation. And so it would make more sense to have a female character, you know, in this situation. It honestly, her her gender didn't play a part in it. Like I I think about it, like oh, is she the the in quote strong female character? You know, I mean, she's basically a man. She, you know, she just has boobs and she does all the hard drinking and like, and it's hard not to fit into that stereotype. But at the same time, like yeah, she could have been a man. Like that's how indifferent I am to the uh, to the subject. So, I mean, it plays a part in her character, but it's not her defining trait, I don't think. Oh, no. And, and it's not like she is trying to find, a, you know, needs a man or anything like that. There's, there's not a, a love interest, a love story going on here with her. No, not yet. Not yet, huh? <laughs> I, know, I just thrown that out there. We'll find uh, out, won't we? I guess we will. Um, you know... I think for me the uh, the part of the book that I that I like the best was the magic system. Um, I like that it was both something that was easy to understand and and also something that infused the whole world. It's not like uh, 
you know, you get used to have high fantasy where it was just um, a few mages that that threw off these crazy spells using arcane language and runes and things that no one else understood. How did you come up with with such a a, a unique magic system? Um, I, it just happened. I mean, since since I've been complimented in my world building, I've been looking at it as a concept, and I I now have a theory about world building that I'd like to operate under at some point. I'd like to explain to people at some point in time, but it just kind of happened and it needed to be logical. Like our laws of physics, which magic is kind of, it's just a, a fantasy conceit that's added to our world. I mean, we basically take our world as a template and then like change one thing by adding magic. And it's, what is that magic? And then once you know what that magic is and you dig into it, then you start filtering our real world through that and like, well, how would this change? You know, the lay that they use to communicate, you know, that's fitting the spot of, of, uh, telephones and the telegraphs and like, so, but you know, that just kind of organically comes out of it. Like, well, if they can sense thoughts, then could they send them along these lines? Like, well, yeah. So then you kind of model it after real world stuff, but again, filtering it through that fantasy conceit. I think I'm trying to take the magic out of magic. Like, it's not special. It's just logic. It's like physics applied to an idea, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> kind of like how uh, Patrick Rothfuss describes his, uh, his you know, lower-level magic then. I will pretend I've read it. I have not. So do not look down on me too badly. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I know. We are a, uh, uh, a Patrick Rothfuss household here. My wife is one of those people that will reread a book a series like 18 times. So I've heard, yes. Yes, and uh, it's it's been quite the uh, the deal lately, as I think that she'll end up going something like four or five pods without being on because she was rereading a series that's not finished yet that <laughs> she will probably reread again when the next one comes out. Well, uh, those, I mean, that's, those are the, pardon me, the, the, the great stories. Like, if you get more out of it each time you read it, like the, the movie The Prestige is probably one of the greatest movies ever made, in my opinion, because each time you watch it, there is another clue that you did not see before, and it is so obvious. And, you know, if you can get something something additional out of it under multiple rewatches, the more power to you. That's a, that's a good good story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that you watched the, uh, the Ken Burns documentary on the Civil War. Um, my background, I have both degrees in history and religious studies, and so, I, I, how did you this like use the Civil War without going being like just too derivative? Like, what were some of the things that you con- did? You do anything conscious? I guess is the question I should be asking. Um, no, unconsciously, I kind of look back on it and like, did I just whitewash the Civil War? Like, did I taking slavery out of it? Did I just make it a states' rights? You know, like, oh, I I don't feel pleasant about that if I did that. But um, no, I didn't. Again, I was, you know, fitting history into my own version of it. So, um, you know, so I, I mean, from the beginning, I knew there was going to be a, a oh, crowd. What do you call the the restoration? What was this por- point after the Civil War? Yeah, that was it. Was the yeah? Okay. Anyways, there was going to be that stage, and you know, so I definitely looked at those things, but I wasn't bound to them. Um, you know, like oh, you know, there's you know, there's a definitely a Grant character in it. But I didn't have to be, he didn't have to be Grant. So, yeah, I mean, history teaches us human nature and so should definitely be studied when writing, even though I have never taken a history class outside of high school. Um, I used Wikipedia quite a bit, um, (laughs) which is a good starting point for when you need to find that random stuff. Um, But, you know, so, you know, you learn from it, use it, but you don't be beholden to it. Yeah, and I think that the like that you the ta- the taking the, the like the real slavery out of it um, was probably the key in making Marta's story like more tragic. I think if the East had had true slaves, that I that Marta would have been a far less sympathetic character. Just, I mean, I know I understand on her own, but just that. It would have been hard to, to really feel bad that she was broken, or not broken, but, you know, had her issues because of fighting to protect sl- slavery. Yeah. I mean, yes, that would <laughs> Yeah. I took away that uh, moral underpinning of it, so, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> she's less of an anti-hero because of that, thank goodness. Yeah, well, I mean, she, you know, she's she's clearly not your uh, uh, traditional like Aragorn or somebody like that. But but I, I just felt like she was the kind of character that, even though she had you know her privileged upbringing, she still had a a tough upbringing and one that that had to make her capable and. That's that's actually why I included those chapters. Um, for anyone who hasn't read it, I alternate chapters. There is two. There are two timelines going. One, the present day storyline, and then the second, they're interlocked. They inter, um, you know, one then the next, and the other one is her backstory. So, by the time you finish the book, you know, the backstory, you are at the beginning of the book in the present day storyline, and that was not intentional when I set it out. I just had this amazing backstory for her and I kind of wanted to do the Robin Hobb thing of, of, Oh, I just have this little snippet at the beginning. And I wrote that first snippet and it was the first chapter and I went, okay, I'm, that's, that's untenable. I'm going to have to alternate between the two all the time. If you've, uh, if for those of you who've listened to any of my uh, previous podcasts, I actually, I, I love that in a, in a story as long as it's done properly. Mm-hmm. And you know, my wife and I talk about how, um, she really didn't like Mark Lawrence's first book, even though we love the subsequent six that he's written because she felt like he just didn't do a good job of that the first time. But then, I, Oh, go ahead. I mean, you, you uh, recent episode about the lies of Lockmora. Like I, you know, it's, it's very Tarantino esque as in it's like, eh, and then by the way, here's an aside. And you're like, no, that's, there's no discipline to that. And like once, once I started the alternating chapters, like, well, I am, I've got to stick to this, like, because otherwise it's just a crutch of like, oh, and by the way, cut away. It's like Family Guy, like, and then this, and then now we're back. You're like, no, that's 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 easy writing. No offense to Mark Lawrence or Lynch, like they, you know, they know what they're doing. It's just a personal taste of mine. I, I got into film because of Tarantino, and now I just I can't I can't watch it anymore because it's just so easy. <laughs> so I guess let's I, I would like to talk a little bit more about your screenwriting background like what what have you how did you get into it and uh, and are you still uh, doing screenwriting full-time um when full-time like every uh, every screenwriter I have a real job and then I take gigs whenever I can um, so yeah I have a <laughs> I am currently writing for Chinese companies. So I have a show, a pilot that went out last year in China, which I've seen, but I've never seen the subtitles. No, I think I've seen the subtitles. Anyways, and then that one didn't ever got picked up. But then another one should be dropping very soon as all 10 episodes in a row in China. So, yeah, I am a working screenwriter who does not have an IMDb page. <laughs> wow, that that's definitely not what i was expecting to hear when you uh describe <laughs> I, your screenwriting experience i know i i am outsourced to uh to china i mean how often does that happen yeah yeah little little reverse uh little reverse action going on there <laughs> um but like every not every like a lot of screenwriters you know i've been in imdb and then that project fell through i've been doing this for 15 years oh god um and you know like oh we've got the director all right everything's going great and like ah he left the project Oh, and then his next film got an Oscar. Awesome. Like, Jerry, that makes me feel good inside. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating. That's what screenwriting is. And then you write to try to spec. A spec script is something that is speculative. Like, hey, there's this idea. And then no, that movie will never get made. They'll take that unless you make it yourself as a produced, you know, as a director, you know, it will never get made. They will buy it and they will go, oh, hey, I've got this project for you. So you show your creativity in screenwriting so that you can be creative for other people. And it's a weird cannibalistic kind of thing. Like I, I remember when, uh, what's his name, got the Oscar for um, uh, Little Miss Sunshine. And my screenwriting buddy was like, he will never write an original idea again. And, you know, he... He wrote Toy Story 3, and a fantastic film. Or now he's doing, you know, did the next Star Wars, which was less fantastic. But, you know, I would rather be him than me. But yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, that's the idea is you show how creative you are so that, you know, you can not be creative anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that, I mean, you know, it's all about the uh, the making the money after that. Once you get, uh, yeah, they they they're making real money. So, uh, you know, I do not begrudge them at all. That is amazing, and I think it's really fun. Like you know, these shows—they were not my ideas, but you know, then it's fun to take it and go, well, you could do this. And they're like, what? Oh, I never thought of that. Like, well, you're not a writer. You know, <laughs> that's why you hire me to do this. And, <laughs> and it's, and it's freeing. Like I remember meeting up with the producer and director months later, we were watching the rough cuts and they were all in Mandarin. And I laughed along with everyone else. And one guy, I was the non-Asian in the room. One guy was like, do you understand Mandarin? I'm like, no, I wrote that. <laughs> like, I know what they're saying. Uh, but you know, they're like, oh, you know, because because they have Chinese names, we write it in English because it's an international um, shooting cast. So it's all written in English. So we have like so so Chris, the character Chris is really, you know, I'm not going to murder a Chinese name, but, you know, it's so-and-so. And they're like, three months later, I didn't remember any of the character names. And they were like, how can you not remember this? Like, because it was, you hired me to write it. I'm not going to keep any of that space of my brain you know <laughs> i don't care about these people I, i'll give you the best product i can but then they're gone i don't yeah done oh yeah well uh, yeah that's that's definitely uh like kind of a cool uh cool thing i you know it's different from i don't know is that is that like a typical screenwriting experience or i mean from someone that lives here in idaho and has never gotten anywhere near a, a screenwriting deal um yes i mean there is no I mean, there are typical ones. I'm not one of them, so I can't tell you for sure. But, you know, I know some guys who sold it, who did sell a spec and, you know, and it got picked up by John Carpenter. And he oh, was man. like, all right, you guys are gone. Like, goodbye. And I went, what? And he was like, oh, I'm going to hire some other guys to rewrite it. Like, done. <laughs> you know? oh, the screenwriter is the least powerful person in the room. If they get, you know, 2% of the budget, then good for them. Oh, man. You know? So the director says, nope, do this. I have this idea. I had a dream last night. I actually got it. I had a dream last night. See if we can work it in there. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, man. So, yeah. So, so, oh, go ahead. So working, working on it like, as, as gigs, like taking what I have and working for someone is great. You know, but yeah, I don't, I don't think I could hand people anything. Like, this is how I put my blood, sweat, and tears in. And like, well, yeah, change this and this and this. Like, I can't do that anymore. So that's the self-publishing is my outlet. I see. And and what is the the goal moving forward? Like, are you planning on really going on a, a social media blitz? Um, do you have a budget for uh, advertising, or or what is your what what you can do with the books? <laughs> um, book two is going to the editor, the copy editor next week. So uh, if you hell, if anyone wants to see a copy of that, let me let me get in touch with me on the website and. Um, I'm going to continue the series. I'm starting a new family. So as a work-at-home person, I am going to be doing some of the child-rearing, most of the child-rearing. So I don't know. I'm going to focus on, I guess, the, the book writing and child-rearing. And then um, the gigs, when they come, if I, can, if I can work them out, then great. And you know, while also maintaining my, my part-time day job. So, oh, man. Well, yeah, oh, man, saying that out loud is terrifying. Does that sound overwhelming? But congratulations on the uh, the young and uh, oh, you know you. You're, did you decide what you're gonna or to find out what you're gonna have? Uh, yes, yes, uh, male. I got to get that. I got to get to play with Legos. I oh, mean, I man. guess you, you could definitely do that with girls, but you know, <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to sitting down and playing with Legos. Yeah, we we have a, a two and a half year old now, and uh, it's uh, they are ninety percent awesome and ten percent just throwing themselves on the ground, having a massive fit. <laughs> oh, good. Yes. <laughs> mine, had, mine decided tonight that he was going to throw himself on the ground when I didn't let him wash his hands a third time. I don't know why we needed to wash our hands, but he wanted to. That day might be the starting point of OCD. You can look back at it at some point and say, oh, that, that third hand washing might have been the time. Oh, yeah, let's hope not. Let's hope not. How how long do you imagine the series going? Does does it have an endpoint? Do you want to just keep going, or what's your idea? Oh no, it is and has a very specific endpoint um, in screenwriting. If you don't know the ending, then why are you sitting down to write? You know, you have to. A screenplay is a roadmap from point A to point B, and you know, so I took that to the book. So, and I basically took, even though we call it a three act structure, 
we really do use a four-act structure, and each of those acts is a book. So four books, it will end here, and yeah, it is It is all planned out. I am an architect, not a seat of the pantser. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's something that, like, I, I've never... Uh... I mean, I've tried to do to dabble a little bit in writing, especially when I was younger, um, not so much as an adult. But um, I, even with just doing this podcast, I have to have an outline and, um, you know, things set up at least for myself or, or I'll just ramble on. So I can <laughs> yeah. understand. I, I don't know how people do it. Uh, I mean, there are people who can see to the pants it. I mean, what's um, on the road, I think, was written in two weeks, you know, so it's good for him. <laughs> I can't operate that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do you have anything else you want to uh, to get get in here? Well, um, please visit my site, MD Presley, Matthew D's Douglas Presley, like Elvis. dot com. I update twice a week on the blog. I've got some fun things. I'm have a feature where I do fantasy playlists because apparently many of us sub-publishers uh, make a playlist that we listen to as we write our book. And so I've been contacting a lot of the uh, authors out there and posting them on the site. And it's kind of fun way to promote your book without actually doing that, <laughs> without doing the same old you know, uh, cover reveal and everything like that too. Um, all of my screenwriting techniques are there. Uh, I've got a spiffbo gambling system where you can you know place your bets on who's going to make it in each section and um a lot of recipes for fantasy animals if you ever need to know how to uh barbecue a troll or cook some fairies <laughs> please visit bugbear uh, barbecue it's a tab on the site and i have a dark sense of humor and it i believe comes through fairly well um what uh who who has your your book for the uh, the Spiffbo at this point? Uh, fantasy book critic. Oh, I gotta make sure I say there's a fantasy book review and fantasy book critic. Fantasy book critic. Okay. And have have you heard anything uh, any any feedback from them or does that not happen until you you just find out? Ah, uh, they just find out. And but yeah, it's yeah. And I'm looking at my competition and it's just like. Um, the Crimson Queen, like I knew that book before I got into the competition, like that's scary. And then Nefertiti's Heart, same thing when I was researching steampunk. So I, there were two books I already knew going into it that I was up against and I'm like, ah, thanks. That's not terrifying at all. So, (laughs) well, I I definitely wish you good luck in that though. And, uh, and you know, I mean, for, for what it's worth, uh, not much, but I absolutely (laughs) loved the book. Oh, thank you. And, uh, you know, I think that the thing is, is that you just don't see enough of the, what am I trying to, what's the word I'm trying to look, it was it was just such a nice tight book that was a good length for me in terms of it wasn't too short or too long, it doesn't have a whole bunch of uh, flowery language, it's unnecessary, it moves right along, there is action the entire way without being overwhelming. And you managed to create a a main character, I think, in Marta, who on paper had all of the privileges and uh, advantages that you could possibly want to have in this world. She is a, a, a powerful magic user. She comes from one of the most powerful families in the world, basically. Yet she doesn't have everything, and she wasn't just handed things on a platter, and she has a tough life. So she's someone that I, I cared about. I really did care about your main character. Um, sorry, aside that, 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 I guess is something I want to hit. Um, like the, the, the background chapters were also, so she wasn't Superman, Batman. Like, I don't know if you created superheroes in elementary and middle school, but they're always like, and then my character's also as smart as Batman and, you know, and he's, but he's as strong as Superman and he also, he's rich and also he's good looking, you know, like she had so many things that I had to show why she could do all the things and also make the tragedy at the same time. So I, I totally tried to, to capture True Detective the first season with their opening. Like that was the inspiration for, you know, the, not the alternating chapters, but you see her as a young child, like full of discovering her power. She's amazing. And then the next one is like, wait, how did she end up this way? Like that's that was hopefully the mystery I was trying to, to raise. And I... Uh, hope it worked out hey you know like i said just for for just one guy it it definitely did 
And so um, I hope that uh, that you make it on in the uh, the spiff bow. And if you don't, I will definitely still be uh, at least uh, you know throwing out my recommendation for. Uh, for at least, you know, I still have at least a few people that listen to this, so. <laughs> well, I, I'm betting it's going to increase significantly over the next few weeks. Uh, you know, I'm definitely hoping so. Uh, you know, I mean, just hey, just having you on here right here, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, um, so let's get let's get everything out here um, in one spot so that uh, everyone who's listening can get it. So you can be reached at mdpresley.com. Uh, do you have a Facebook and, or Twitter or anything like that? I have a f- I have a Twitter, but I think it's finally withered and died. Um, Facebook, I'm at Souls Harvest, but you know, go to the site. You can, you know, there's links there. That's probably a lot easier. Um, and yeah, that's it. I mean, like, I, I have a, a Instagram, but I I make jewelry also on the on the side, like you know, with proper with soldering and stuff and lots of hammers. So that I, so it's Instagram is just for that. So oh, yeah, okay. I think, well- I think there's a link there too for all that it matters. Yeah, yeah, there is. I, I looked at it and I was like, "Ah, oh, this is this is definitely not book related." When I when I went to your Instagram, but that and that was kind of the inspiration for the woven ring. Like I had, like, uh, oh wait, I've I can make this thing. I actually tried to give away a couple of them. Um, in the first cover, that was actually a juiced up picture of what I made. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. So um, I was thinking, oh, but yeah. And as I said, I'm an architect, you know, when it comes to the writing, but the woven ring was just like, I don't know what to call it. Uh, Oh, she's got this woven ring that just was not in the plan at all. It just showed up in that first chapter when she gets it from her father. And I was like, oh, wait, I have four characters in it, you know, and then there's the four strands of it and there's one gold. And it just like, I think that's called symbolism, but that sure (laughs) wasn't intentional. Like, yeah, I was not a believer in symbolism in high school and to have it happen uh, was a bit of a surprise. So I will stop sounding pretentious now. <laughs> well, hey, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast, uh, being the uh, first guest. Uh, I guess depending on how this ends up sounding uh, and uh, coming out when I get done editing, then uh, you can. It's, it's either an honor to be the first guest or a curse <laughs> when we have to do this all over again. <laughs> well, I, f- I figure it's um, it's like uh, two virgins getting it on for the first time. You know, at the time it seemed great. It was probably terrible. <laughs> you know, I I had a lot of fun. Uh, uh, thank you for being my first. You were uh, <laughs> you were a gentle first. Oh, you beat me to saying that. Ah. <laughs> well, I will give you the punchline, sir. <laughs> uh, once again, um, uh, the Woven Ring by M. D. Presley. Well, uh, I hope that everyone will stick around after this and listen to my book review. I I would definitely do that if I can cringe my way through the first one. (laughs) All right. Hey, thank you. No problem. Take care, man. And I really appreciate this opportunity. Hey, I, um, I appreciate you coming on. Have a good one. Take care. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to my very first interview. This next section, uh, I hope it goes well. This will be the first time I am doing a review by myself without a co-host. Anyways, I guess we're going to find out what happens. So we talked a bit about the book with uh, uh, MD Presley, Matt. And uh, one thing I do need to mention is that it is available on Amazon. And we, um, he said that the second week of October, it will be on sale for 99 cents. So... If you this sounds like something you'd like and you are waiting to get a hold of it, then uh, maybe waiting till October will be the way to go. All right, so we didn't give actual book info, so let's do that now. Uh, the Woven Ring is 392 pages long and is the first book in the Souls Harvest series. Uh, it was published this year, and as he said, uh, I believe he said, the second book will be coming out in November. He plans on it being a four-book uh Quadrology, <laughs> however you say that. Uh, the book is set in a fictional world. Uh, if you are the kind of person that likes maps, then as he said on his website, there are some very detailed maps available on the website. There's also uh, three maps available at the beginning of the book. Um, they're set up where you see the north in one, the south uh, in the uh, other one, and then a more detailed map of just the nation of Newfield where the book will be taking place. 
the way to, to think about these two continents is the northern continent is basically like Europe, the old world, with a bunch of very civilized older nations, uh, much more civilized than Europe would have been during our Civil War. The south is broken down into the nation of Newfield and a bunch of other ones that we don't get into so far. Uh, Newfield is mostly, uh, just think like America. The big uh, conflict in this is actually between the, the west part of Newfield and the east. The west is dominated by a religious faction called the Renders, who believe that all breath, which all humans possess, actually all things possess, humans possess three breaths, unless you have magic, which means you have a fourth breath, and they believe that all breath needs to be able to mingle before soul comes back and I guess kind of has their version of the second coming. And the East has the weavers who um, do things like bind breaths to create like automatons kind of. They're basically their version of the slaves where in the West um, you're going to be more industrial. The East has big plantations kind of like the North and South in the Civil War. Only we don't have real, uh, real slaves. These these uh, automatons that they create don't have any sort of um, mind abilities. One of the big issues will be between the the renders and the weavers, because obviously, if the uh, weavers are keeping the breath occupied, then it clearly can't mingle. So, just getting in a little bit more detail about the magic system that I absolutely loved. The magic, um, basically. All things are created out of breath. So plants only have one breath. Animals have two breaths. And people have three. As well as some other magical creatures. That There's not a lot of them. But they'll be mostly created out of three breaths as well. If you happen to be blessed and born with a fourth breath. Then you have the ability to use magic. There's three different uh, primary ways that manifests itself. Um, you either have your fourth breath on your body. So you can create things like armor and weapons. Your breath will be can be in your mind. And the two big ways there are mind control and the ability to uh, read thoughts. And then the fourth one is your breath is on your soul. and Or your spirit, sorry. And that, those people have, are where the renders and the weavers kind of come in. Renders will tear, they have the ability to tear... Uh, breaths out of things um they'll often use their ability to um, kill the magical creatures which can e either be beneficial or uh or bad some of them are just pure evil some of them are indifferent to people and some actually will help the weavers on the other hand usually use that ability to um weave breaths together to create things the uh civil war will actually be sparked when a render kills the basically the magical mascot of one of the towns in the East. Just uh, magic is, is interspersed throughout the world in depth, not just a little bit. Like people will, at this point, the uh, magic and technology are kind of blended together. They have these highways where the breaths tend to, uh, to travel, and they have actually created trains basically that run on top of these breaths also cities tend to go along these ley lines and uh, now like I said that they're their transportation hubs as Matt talked about the book is told from the perspective of Marta and as in a split um, story where one will be in what will be the considered the present and the other part is going to start when she's a child of about 10 and then we'll kind of uh, uh, get closer together to uh, to current time as it goes along. As I've mentioned, I really felt like Matt did an awesome job of using the Civil War as an anchor in a way that was easy for people to, uh, to kind of have that general knowledge of how things should go, but he didn't just use it as a crutch and just use it as a... Um, uh, he didn't go just straight off of things that happened in the Civil War, for example. Honestly, in this one, uh, the East and the West both do bad things. Neither one's really going to be a good guy or a bad guy as it goes on. Um, the East slaves were like mindless constructs, so we're not dealing with that version of good and evil like the American Civil War. And just in case there are anybody out there who wants to say, oh, it was just the states' rights, 
Let's remember that the Confederate version of the Declaration of Independence and their mission statement both said that it was because they wanted to preserve their right to own slaves. And going back to that magic real quick, uh, certain like about 2% of the population has magical, uh, magical ability, but certain clans like uh, Martas have bred themselves uh, strategically so that they have uh, a much higher percentage of their family has that ability. And there's another uh, famous clan called the Dobra who are who breed listeners. And that way, basically, it's like a telegraph system th- um, through the ley lines. Um, I think Marta was definitely a very uh, flawed character, but she was one. But that made her so she wasn't single dimensional. And I felt for her as a character. And um, her companions, both past and present, uh, they get a little bit of a. Uh, they're fleshed out. Um, for the most part, obviously, there's some throwaway characters. There always has to be, but I felt like for the most part, he did a good job of fleshing it out. And the only um, real issue I had with the book was that the way um, some of these things come up at first is it. It seems like the war was over like ten years ago, when it was only uh, about two years ago that the war ended, and I felt like maybe like one or two of the cities was uh, a little bit more. Uh, rebuilt and put together than than otherwise maybe we should have been, but that's a pretty minor issue that I didn't uh, didn't like get me out of the story at all. It's just something that that my historical aspect um, might think about, and maybe even like talking about today that you know Puerto Rico is going to take years and years to to recover from this unfortunate hurricane, and uh, some of these cities were really bombed out. Uh, let's try to keep things moving along here. Um, the uh how did it make me feel i I definitely felt for all the characters i um i cared about what was happening to marta and to her people um i'm not going to put it on the jemison level that seems to be my uh (laughs) my default every time for how uh how emotional it was for me but it certainly um i certainly cared about it i felt like it was a nice tight story as i said in the interview so it moved right along it made me enter- kept me entertained throughout. I'm obviously going to give this a five star, and you know what? I'm going to recommend this to uh, pretty much anyone who um, likes a uh, a darker story. Um, I guess this would be more of like a grim dark story. It's also got a little bit of that western feel. Um, you do have some, uh, you know, it's horseback um, for the most part, or early trains. Kind of think like uh, if you had the. Uh, Civil War era, like 1880s technology, but just with magic, so they're a little bit farther along because of that. But for the most part, that's how people are going to live. The last thing I'll say is that it was I really just enjoyed this book. I'm going to put this right behind Red Sister as my favorite book that I've read so far this year. And as I found out on Amazon, that's about 60 books this year. So I apparently read a lot. Um, probably the reason why I do a podcast now. Anyways, thank you all for listening. Um, once again, it, this will be on sale in October, the second week of October, and I would love it if you would give me some feedback on how you felt like this episode went. This is my first interview, um, and maybe you like the format of me doing an actual short little book review after. Maybe everyone would prefer I didn't do a book review after and just kept it to an author interview. Um, once again, please give me some feedback. You can reach me on uh, Twitter with a handle at Nerdbook Review. That's probably the easiest. Uh, Facebook, we have a page, nerdbookfacebook.com slash nerdbookreview. Uh, you can email me. And if you would um, be so kind as to rate and review me on iTunes, that would be wonderful. I know there are uh, um, a lot more people listening to us now than um, at the beginning, but we are still struggling for reviews on iTunes. And that is something that you have to have in order to get people to or your uh, your podcast seen by more people. Thank you all very very much. I hope you enjoyed it and like I said, please let me know. All right, have a good one.